0: Welcome to Future Foodcast. We're a community of industry experts, food technologists, and food enthusiasts talking all about the future of food. Future Foodcast is sponsored by Farm to Plate, the brainchild of Paramount Software Solutions. Farm to Plate is a software company committed to creating tomorrow's food business ecosystem today. And I'm very excited about uh, the view that we have coming today all about the organic food business and a great story within that. We have Jason Freeman with us. He's the founder and CEO of Farmer Direct Organic Foods. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, and I forgot my name. I'm Pam Line Miller, your host. I'm excited to be uh, we're interviewing with Jason this, today and um, can't wait to bring you some of that. Jason has such a rich volume of experience in this food space. I can't wait for him to tell us his story a little bit. So Jason, please catch us up. I mean, where did you start in all of this? I mean, you're in a great place right now. Where did you start your journey with organic foods?
1: Yeah, well, it started uh, back in 1996, 97. And I was working with a uh, a trade show and marketing company that was... um, lobbying the Canadian government to legalize industrial hemp and part of that we did trade shows and we had uh, conferences and at the conferences at the trade shows there were some organic farmers that were uh, growing industrial hemp and uh, the Canadian government legalized industrial hemp in 1998 so I uh, approached those farmers and asked them if they would grow organic hemp seed for me which they did so I formed a company in 1999 all of our farmers uh, and processes were in Saskatchewan Canada So in May of 2000, I moved out to Saskatchewan, to be closer to that. And in uh, uh, 2001, I sold that company. And then the farmers that were growing the hemp seed approached me and said, well, we grow lentils, we grow beans, peas, wheat uh, organically. Will you uh, market our product? said to them, if they formed a cooperative, I would uh, manage their sales marketing logistics for them. So that's how Farmer Direct Co-op was founded in uh, May or August of 2002. So that's, you know, that's where it started.
0: Yeah. And that was that was a long time ago. I mean, in the organic food world, you know, it's been around for a while, but to getting the cooperatives together and all of that, I mean, that was pretty much on the front end of some of that work, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. So I'd say probably the second wave of organic. So we had some farmers that started organic farm, like that we were working with that started in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And then around 2000, second wave, I'd say of, you know, organic entrepreneurs came into it, started forming brands and, you know, really started to to push the organic agenda into um, into retail.
0: Yeah. I feel like consumers started to get on board later. You know, there was a smaller group, I guess that first wave that you're talking about, but, you know, I remember hearing more about organics and like I used to order from a local Uh, group that it was a farm that was local to me that would source from other organic farmers in the area and similar to what you're saying, like bringing things together and, um, you know, yeah, so, so
1: before, and like, ironically, you know, I didn't time it like this just happened like that. We formed we Farmer formed Direct uh, Co-op in 2002. And that's the same year where the National Organic Program came out in the US. So the um, the federal law that defined what certified organic food was. Prior to that, you had about 50 plus different certification bodies across the US and So that, you know, that was great. It was very grassroots, but uh, there was no national rule. So it impeded um, market development in a sense because, you know, retailers weren't necessarily going to, you know, get on board when they had to go through. Well, you know, we're getting from this sort of fire and this sort of fire and the rules are a little different. But 2002 came along and so the law became uniform and that's when organic food really started to take off.
0: Yeah. And that that's key. That whole standardization across the industry, like you were saying, I mean, from uh, an owner perspective or the the producer perspective, like you said, companies aren't going to try to meet all these different standards. But when we can get like a federal standard, like you said, came across. So that was probably a game changer. But you were still a co-op at that point. And so bring us up to speed. Like what happened during that time?
1: So in 2002, our, you know, from 2002 to 2011, our main business was um, selling, say, truckloads of, say, uh, large green lentils to uh, organic food manufacturers. Uh, But when the uh, financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009, uh, commodity markets, whether it was organic or conventional, just got totally turned upside down prices just evaporated, markets evaporated. And so we got together with the farmers and said, well, we need to find higher volume, sorry, higher margin markets that are more stable. So that's when we decided to come up with the farmer direct co-op brand. Uh, the problem was we had no money, of course, because of the financial crisis. But we figured that, well, what can we do? We can put our lentils and beans and peas and whatnot in 25 pound bags for retailer bulk bins. And so that's what we did. You know, we had no money to do market development, come up with cereal or, you know, bars or whatever, you know, know, innovative products. So we just decided to focus on really um, pantry staples for consumers through the bulk bins. And so what we also decided to do at that point in time to give us more of a marketing edge and also because we felt it was the right thing to do is we we're looking at um, a lot of organic goods from the global south, like coffee, sugar, things like that, that were also not just organic, but they're also uh, certified fair trade. Uh, no one was doing that in North America or in in U.S. and Canada yet. There were real issues with um, fairness to farmers and fairness to uh, farm labor, even on organic farms. Uh, one of the th- one of the things about the um, 2002 National Rule. Uh, regulation in the states was that they decided to take uh, keep social justice uh, regulations out of it. So, you know, while it uh, focused on production, there was no focus on fairness to farmers or farm workers. So we hooked up with a group called the Agricultural Justice Project, uh, which was controlled and owned by farmers and farm workers. So it was a domestic fair trade standard, (laughs) Um, that was controlled by the very people that it's meant to benefit. So we're like, well, this is a really strong standard. So our our 60 farmers went through this process. Uh, We got certified. It was a great process too. farmers learned a lot. A lot of the informal relationships they had with their farm workers became formalized through contracts, which both the farmers and the farm workers after the process said that it was great because they actually had a document they could reference whenever there were issues. And didn't have that before. So, you know, a lot of good things came out of that. And, you know, so we figured that, you know, we'll, we'll sell a few pallets or whatever of this. Um, so we started that in 2011. 2013, Whole Foods Market came calling and they said, we really love what you guys are doing. And it ended up being about five to seven truckloads of business a month. It was just a huge volume, and so that really took our co-op from insolvency to its solvency. You know, money in the bank, and you know, so it was great. And how we launched it, and like what were attributes? So consumer facing. We were 100% farmer-owned. We were 100% organic, and we were 100% domestic fair trade—something that we call the fair deal. And we found a, an amazing partner in Whole Foods Market. And just one of the things for entrepreneurs too, to understand: if you can effectively communicate your attributes to the marketplace, you'll get a lot of support from the retailers. And you know what I mean by that is not necessarily like you know that. The head office going hey this is great but literally at the store level and if people remember those great like kofu's market chalkboards they had staff making these absolutely beautiful chalkboards saying 100 farmer owned 100 organic 100 uh, fair deal is what we called our domestic fair trade uh, regime or our, our, our um, program and so it really took off um so you know Can
0: I pause you there for a second? Because I, I don't want to skim over this point, Jason, that you were doing, before the Whole Foods deal came along, you, you weren't, you, it's not like because Whole Foods wanted to work with you, you went after all these Standards and doing the right thing by your farmers and your owners, and the whole fair trade, fail, fair deal, 100%. 100%. 100%. You were doing that because that was the right thing to do. And I think that's a really important, like good corporate citizen, even though you weren't thinking of yourselves as corporate citizens at that point. You were, you know, interfacing with a lot of farms and farmers and making a difference at that level because it was the right thing to do. Like you, you, You didn't have any other motivation at that point. And that is part of what allowed you to have the success with Whole Foods. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I explained to people Farmer Direct was the perfect marriage between an organic consumer and organic farmers, because I I wasn't a farmer. I never grew up in a farm. I grew up in an urban center. I didn't step onto a farm until I was 30 years old. But by the time Farmer Direct Co-op came around, I'd been an organic consumer for just under 10 years. And it always bothered me that you'd have brands that were like split they would be they'd have some organic skews and then some conventional skews which they called natural which still doesn't mean anything there's no real definition of natural in the marketplace And so I was like, well, this is wrong. Like, there's got to be latent demand. I'm not the only organic consumer out there who may be frustrated about this. And I found out pretty quickly when we launched that, no, you know, there was a lot of organic consumers that shared that view. And as time went on, too, a lot of organic consumers are getting frustrated because there's an issue with organic integrity. You know, can you really trust, you know, with, with all the demonstrated organic fraud that's happened with the court cases and the imports? You know, it's not just a theory. There is organic fraud that's been perpetuated. And, you know, it's usually a companies that, you know, they sell organic, they sell natural, they sell conventional. They don't care. It's not an ethical proposition for them. It's a business proposition. So for us, we felt that, you know, if we led with an ethical proposition, we'd get all those like minded consumers uh, supporting us. Now, you know, let's be very clear about this. There's 350 million people in the US. If There's only 1% because people tell me people don't care. People don't care. And I'm like, yeah, but 1% do, maybe 5% do. But if 1% do, that's 3.5 million consumers. If you market effectively, they will find you and they will support you because they're hardcore. And then you can build a business off of that. And I I thought to myself too, like, how else can you build a business? Because if you're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing, you're not differentiated, and so you have to compete with them and their larger marketing budgets, and you know, and you know, whatnot. So we did this, and yeah, it, it worked out. It was effective.
0: Exactly, Jason. You were doing doing what you needed to do on the front end, and hopefully, spreading that. You know, the the organic food fraud that's a real thing, but food fraud is a real thing, not just in the organic area. So that is definitely a real situation, a real problem that a lot of manufacturers have and the sourcing of their food. So, you know, we're trying to work on, on solutions to all of that and you identifying the farmers that you're working with and, and having contracts with them and monitoring that, you know, that's, Making a great step in the right direction to actually be able to to justify and prove that you really are producing the um, organic food. I know you've had some challenges with regulations with organics and what's organic and what's not organic. I, I don't want to get in the political realm here, but I know there are people that don't necessarily know food as well that are making uh, policy around organics and why don't you share a little bit about that and what you see as kind of purely organic food and not organic food?
1: Yeah so you know we have to have a real really realistic expectation about our system and um, one you know so it was great when federally the US government came out with um, the 2002 regulation but the downside is that now the government controls it. And as things happen, large corporations will lobby Congress to water down that regulation. So, um, you know, we anticipated that. And that's why we did, you know, we're 100% organic. That's why we uh, will now have full traceability. And that's also why our our, uh, organization evolved uh, into Regen Organic Certification, because, you know, there's a lot of things that are good about the uh, National Organic Program, but a lot of things that are bad about it now. And so... um, for example, they're allowing hydroponics in uh, to be certified organic. Now the problem with that is that the very basis of organic agriculture, you know the reason that it exists is to build soil. So when you have soilless agriculture, soil isn't built, obviously. So all the consumers that were trying to support the farmers that were building soil for all kinds of, you know, amazing reasons. When you build soil properly, it provides all sorts of ecosystem services. It cleans the air, filters the water, it holds more water. So you have less flooding, for example. And the most important thing is it produces nutrient-dense food. When your soil dies, the symbiotic relationship between soil microorganisms and plant roots Ceases to exist, and that uh, symbiotic relationship is what transfers the phytomins, so vitamins and minerals in the soil into the plants.
0: And that um, is that is really one of the key things for you as an organic representative or in the Regen Organic, uh, and we'll put that link out in the notes. Uh, certification, you, you're very much a caretaker of the soil. You very much care about the health of the soil that your plants are grown in.
1: Yeah, I think it was the UN, the the Food and and Agriculture Organization of the UN says we have about 60 harvests left before um, a lot of the topsoil, you know, around the world is gone. Okay. Uh, Once the topsoil is gone, you can't produce food anymore. And so it's becoming extremely dire. You know, there's all sorts of things too. If you look at the Mississippi Basin, you know, there used to be in some places 14, 18 uh, feet of topsoil uh, because of industrial soil management, industrial agriculture, a lot of that's been wiped away. And where did it end up? It's ended up in the Gulf of Mexico. So I think there's, it's, I think it's, uh, it's like just huge. Like a thousand square miles sandbar that wasn't there before and this has all sorts of um you know downstream um uh, ramifications one is that the you know the seafood industry is you know and a lot of parts have been devastated because um you know what they used to harvest isn't there anymore and then if you even look at uh, hurricane katrina mm-hmm. what happened was that once the hurricane got through florida it kind of lost steam but once it hit that sandbar Okay, so you have very shallow water, which is incredibly warm, because it's shallow, all that energy picked up in that hurricane, and then it just slammed into New Orleans. So you know, how much does that cost? Right? What's the human cost of that? What's the economic cost of that? It's almost immeasurable. And this is because we didn't manage our topsoil properly.
0: Yeah. So so the things that you're doing, you know, you're you're trying to set the pace and and affect positive policy and, you know, do the right thing with your farmers so that we can really answer that sustainability call moving forward. We want to be able to provide food and, and good food to to everyone moving forward. So I really like a lot of things you're doing and obviously Whole Foods does as well because you're in. I don't know how many of their stores and and others obviously but it's a it's a great story of of doing the right thing and and bringing good quality organic foods to the market which we are clamoring for. We as consumers are interested. We're paying attention and I think that's all in your favor as well.
1: Yeah, the everything behind farmer direct uh is like what I'm fundamentally Trying to do, you know, as a founder of the CEO, is that when a consumer goes to the store and he purchases our product, or he or she purchases our product, they know and they are confident that those grains were produced in a way that builds soil. Okay, it doesn't matter, you know, where it is in the U.S. or Canada, which farm it's coming from. Every time you buy a farmer direct product, it's building soil. You know, it's um, it's part of the solution. So they don't, this, consumers are busy, right? They're getting all oh, thousands of marketing messages thrown at them every day. Don't want them to have to be worried about, well, is this brand really saying what they're doing? You know, we're still 100% organic. We're never not going to be 100% organic. And we're elevating that beyond just the NOP to regen organic uh Certification, and so actually, right now, if you're interested, you know a lot of people like oatmeal. If you go yeah. to a Whole Foods Market, bulk bins, and uh, a number of independent retailers in the U.S., their bulk bins, um, you can buy your oatmeal, for example, and can feed your family. You know something nutritious that you can trust that is part of solution.
0: Yeah, and and that's really positive. And I think part of your entrepreneurial journey, you know, and maybe it was a little bit of an accidental entrepreneurial journey for you (laughs) based on your story. Like you were going to step in and do the marketing and then the bottom fell out, you know, just the circumstances that happened in the financial crisis. And you had some skills to be able to step in and honestly, a heart for for the farmer and for organics and for service I mean that comes through in the decisions that you've made uh, as an entrepreneur but you're being rewarded for that now with um, the farmer direct organic foods brand yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah absolutely so I guess more more of the story is um, yeah. so I uh, I worked you know as the um, the general manager at Farmer Direct Co-op till 2016. So I left after 14 years. Uh, the reason, um, So the reason I left uh, Farmer Direct Co-op is me and the board had disagreement in the direction that the co-op should go. Um, I wanted to continue to focus on the retail and expand that. Farmers wanted me to focus on commodity sales and, you know, The thing about commodity sales is you have to spend a lot of money on infrastructure. So, for example, if you want to sell wheat in an elevator, where you have to blend the wheat, if you want to do flour, you need to build a flour mill. Uh, You know, these are multi-million-dollar investments nowadays. And so, you know, I said to farmers, "Let's just wait. Let's be patient. Let's build our profit, our retained earnings through the higher-margin retail sales. Let's really cultivate this because it's working." Uh, There's a split between the board, you know, half of them want, you know, agreed with me, the other half didn't. So I, you know, at the end of the day, I said, Hey guys, 14 years, this retained earnings, money in the bank, you know, I'm going to leave, you know, so we left on good terms, but unfortunately by 2018, um, the farmer's gone to financial trouble um, because, you know, what entrepreneurs, if you want to get in the food industry, you need to understand is it's incredibly capital intensive And it's just expensive dealing with the distributors. If you're not on top of it, there's all sorts of chargebacks and fees that, uh, you know, because entrepreneurs are watching this, um, just as an example, yeah, it was this fiscal year, um, one of our distributors literally took $130,000 from what they were supposed to pay us uh, in fees. Until they we realized that those weren't our fees; those are fees they were supposed to take from another company. Oh my goodness! We got goodness. the money back, but you'll get it back in six months. So my point is, there's one hundred thirty thousand dollars out of your cash flow. There's nothing you can do about it.
0: You yeah, just have to wild. wait.
1: Yeah, you have to be diligent. So you know it's incredibly capital uh, intensive, and you know it just got away on the farmers, unfortunately. So in 2018, they came back to me and said, hey, we're in a bit of trouble. Um, we want you to buy the brand from us. And, you know, we still keep buying our grain. And I said to them, OK, well, I'll, I'll do that. Got together with my business partner, Luke Zygowitz, and we formed uh, Farmer Direct Organic Food, uh, sorry, Farmer Direct, Farm Direct Organic Foods. And we went to marketplace. We salvaged a lot of our relationships. I, I remember that the first meeting that we had is I flew down to Austin, Whole Foods Market head office, and said, "Hey guys, mm-hmm. you know, can we, you know, salvage this relationship here?" And they're like, "Glad to have you back." And yes, and so we relaunched as Farmer Direct Organic. That's the brand name. Uh-huh. And this time the attributes were different. Still 100% um, organic we will always be 100% organic again, because there's a real issue in the marketplace as an organic consumer with organic integrity. You know, again, too many brands playing both sides of the aisle, you know, whether it's conventional, natural and organic. And so it gets confusing for the consumers. So we're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're focused on being 100% organic. And then, you know, instead of farmer own, we're like, what do consumers want? If we're not going to be farmer own, what do they want? They want traceability. They want to make sure that it's actually organic. And so all our products are traceable back to the family farm. Um, yeah. So we have that traceability and we don't, so right now everything we purchase is from US or Canadian farmers, but our rule is that anything we grow here, um, we won't offshore, okay? That doesn't mean in the future we, we won't buy um, you know, dates, for example, or coffee or, or whatnot, because obviously we don't grow that here. So you have to um, offshore them, but anything we can grow here, we won't offshore. And this is another example where we took an ethical stance when COVID hit and there's all these supply chain issues, it really, like, we we were rewarded for that ethical decision. Um, you know, just another thing about, you know, supply chain issues during COVID, it was a nightmare for a lot of companies. You know, not only are all our grains and legumes from North uh, Canada, the U.S., also all our packaging is from the can- Canada, the U.S., did get any packaging from China, for example. And, you know, we talked to some people in the industry and their container ocean container fees went from like, you know, $4,500 us to over $20,000. Yeah. And, you know, we we're talking to some of our buyers who are just telling us horror stories about, you know, how they had to eat some of that too, because, you know, if they had their uh, suppliers eat that their suppliers would have gone bankrupt and they wouldn't have had that supply. So, you know, for all those people that, you know, you know, bring coffee and stuff like that had no choice, really unfortunate, but, you know, really stress that if you can find something in in North America, you know, I I would uh, build that supply chain and strengthen it. Because, you know, these supply chain disruptions are going to happen again, We don't Mm -hmm. exactly know when, but they will happen again. And, you know, you're going to be out, it's going to cost you a lot of money. So that, you know, doing the right thing, doing the ethical thing, you know, we rewarded for that again.
0: Yeah. And you were rewarded for that because you were able to supply because you were more locally sourced. You weren't having to depend on that offshore supply chain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we didn't have wait. We weren't waiting for like three, four, sometimes six months to get a part in or to, you know, to get packaging or to get that grain. Mm-hmm. So we were able to be a reliable supplier during a time of real stress for the retailers. So, you know, again, that, uh, aided us now when we introduce new products um, you know the, re- the retailers will um, really support us in that mm-hmm. and what happened about uh, yeah two and a half years ago is Whole Foods Market came to us and said hey hey you guys uh, you know re- you're a reliable supplier so maybe you can help us out with this we're, we're now looking for a Regen Organic certified product Okay. and for um, your audience that may not be too familiar with what that is, Regen Organic Certification was a uh, reaction to um, the watering down of the National Organic Program, the USDA seal, specifically the addition of hydroponics to it. And so Dr. Barnes Magic Soaps, Patagonia, um, the Rod- Rodale Institute got together and created this standard called Regen, Regen Organic Certification, which addressed that but also address some of the things that were left out of the original NOP in 2002. Um, So some of those social justice aspects and animal welfare uh, regulations. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things about regenerative certification that we like. It's very much more like the original 2002 standard, which really focused on soil health, plus it's adding the uh, social justice and animal welfare aspects to it. So Mm -hmm. for example, under ROC, you not allow parallel production. So what parallel production is under the NOP, the USDA seal, farm can have conventional land and it can have organic land and it can grow wheat on both of those lands. Awesome. So you have the same farm growing conventional wheat and organic wheat. Well, there's all sorts of issues with that, of course, right? Cross-contamination uh, to outright fraud, right? So mistakes yeah. to outright fraud. ROC doesn't allow that. Um, Roc doesn't allow hydroponics and organics, so you know that when something is organic certified, it was grown in soil. Yeah. So that's great. Okay. And um, Roc also has mandatory soil testing. There's no mandatory soil testing in um, uh, regular organic, and that's really important because uh, we're excited about that too. Over the next few years, we're going to have a really good data set, so we can show we can work with our farmers to show that they're building soil organic matter, for example, Mm -hmm. so that they're building soil organic carbon, for example, and um, that they're building soil. Um, Under organics, there's no real requirement to test to verify that you are building soil. So, region organic certification there is. Um, And they have some really good um, regulations regarding animal husbandry Um, to prevent the uh, corporatization or the industrialization of organics, because that's another issue too. The spirit of the NOP was that, you know, you wouldn't have these, uh, you know, industrial organic factory farms, you know, um, that animals would have access to pasture. Well, when it goes from a spirit to becoming an interpretation, you know, well, you know, there's a door over there that the animals can see. So, you know, they could choose to walk out of if they wanted to. You know, so you end up having these like massive industrial dairies, for example, in the middle of the Utah desert that have, you know, these huge irrigation pivots that are growing the, um, the grasses for the animals to eat, for example, um, and the corn for them to eat versus, say, you know, an organic family farm in the in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, that's, you know, a few hundred acres and they're rotationally grazing and, you know, where you, where consumers think that their milk is coming from. It's not. And the problem is that those farmers that are doing it right, those appropriate scale family farms have to compete against these industrial farms. And where you really see it hurt them is in all the private label milk uh, with the retailers. So most of the private label organic milk in the US comes from these larger industrial operations because the retailers are so price sensitive. So with ROC, again, as a consumer, if you're if you're drinking milk that's ROC certified, it's coming from appropriate scale farms, family farms that aren't industrialized, that are doing it properly, that don't have like you know, a conventional operation next door, you know, it's just again, it's what consumers think when they think organic.
0: Right. And so just taking advantage of the labeling, I mean, that's not helpful. How would I, as a consumer, know? you know, something might say organic on it, but how do I know that it's Regen Organic Certified?
1: So there's a seal. uh, And you can go to it's uh, www.regenorganic.org. Great. Yeah. And you can learn all about it.
0: Or, you know,
1: type in uh, uh, Regenerative Organic Certified, you know, type that into your search. Sure.
0: because I know we, we've got some listeners that are going to be interested in that. And in addition to that, you know, that that care of the soil that you were talking about, what what does that look like moving into the future? I mean, I love that you're collect, collecting data because here at Future Foodcast, we, we love data. We're all about technology. Our sponsor is all about technology and the supply chain and keeping track of all the data. So we're really focused on that. But as far as the health of the soil and getting the analytics about that and helping your farmers do better. I mean, what are they doing to try to affect positive change, you know, and maintaining the health of the soil?
1: So a lot of them are doing rotational grazing, for example, which is, you know, you do it properly and that's, that's the way you build soil. You know, we have one farmer, uh, for example, that he's got, um, He's got he rotationally grazes cattle and grows crops, and he's showing you know increased yields, higher quality, and you know he's building soil. It's it's amazing. It's a beautiful farm. That's the way you do it. Some of them are using advanced composting techniques too. There's some really interesting things that are um, coming out of South America, out of the Amazon, actually. You want me to talk about that a little bit?
0: Oh yeah, I would love that. I think our our listeners might be interested as well.
1: So you know we have this bias in our society that somehow you know we're at the height of technology that you know everything before us was primitive and so scientists are finding archaeologists are finding out through something called LADAR which is laser radar they're flying over the Amazon rainforest and they can see beneath the canopy what they found out is these massive cities and they estimate that um, there's a population about 40 million you know from what I've read I tend to think it's actually more, but this is what they've shown. And so, so people have to understand that's, you know, a massive population. So they obviously had technology to grow food to support that population. What were they doing? Right. And so archaeologists found out when they've actually gone down into these cities and started like excavating is that these massive, like two, three square mile garden beds, like raised garden beds that have this incredible soil in it and they've named this soil terra preta and what essentially what it is and and what some people have done in this day is um we call it say biochar is that the ancients had technology they realized that they took you know wood and they burnt it down not not all the way but to the it's carbon and then they took took all that carbon and they inoculated it with all sorts of things with manure with urine with all sorts of different plant matter over a period of about three months, this carbon would soak up all of this life. And then they would put it back on the garden beds and they found that it produced tremendous fertility. So people are doing this in the modern era. They're calling it biochar and they're having incredible results. So much. So we had one of our farmers that did they it didn't. on the field as an experiment he claims that after five years of applying this biochar, he got he was getting better yields than his conventional neighbors on their wheat. And so, you know, that's another very tricky word, yield, because yield. in the era, all we seem to care about is oh, we you know we got like 200 bushels of corn an acre, for example that corn's nutrient deplete. So if you actually look at yield from uh, minerals and vitamins in the actual grain itself, it's a very, very low yield. But with biochar, you can get similar yields um, that people are getting with synthetic nitrogen. So, you know, your bushel bushel amounts, but also with corresponding incredible uh, yield and nutrient density. And so you have to look, why are people getting sick in our society? And one of the reasons we're getting sick is because people are nutrient deplete, they don't have enough uh, trace vitamins and minerals in their food. And therefore, they don't have enough trace vitamins and minerals in their body. When people don't have enough trace vitamins and minerals in their body, the body doesn't work optimally, your immune system doesn't work optimally. And when the body's not optimal, it literally gets signals out to the world saying I am a sick and dying organism. So that's when you get attacked,
0: come attack me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, by viruses and bacteria, because like, oh, great, this is a dying organism, we need to do our job, we're going to go and we're going to consume that organism. Mm -hmm. When people are vitamin and nutrient rich, they're stronger, their immune systems are stronger. And so the, the viruses and bacteria, which, you know, would attack weak organism doesn't affect them as much, you know, you have the mechanisms in your body to fight this off. You know, you're giving a signal to the world, the outside world, that you're strong, you're vital, you're healthy. Yes. Um, and th- there's there's a lot that's been like, you know, this, well, you know, it's not mainstream science, but it's been scientifically shown to be correct. And so, um, but it also doesn't really fit into the pharmaceutical paradigm. Because, well,
0: here, I'm sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to interrupt you. But here, here's what I'm hearing from you, Jason, is that we we are looking at some of the wrong things. We are paying attention uh, when we think about a farmer as being successful, you know, and maximizing their yield. We think about the quantity is the only thing to measure in that. But what I'm hearing from you is that's not the only thing to measure in that. Really, it's the quantity, but also the quality. Like what is the nutritional content of the that product, whether it be corn or wheat or whatever, or lagoon, whatever it is they're, producing, that, that really needs to be a data point that we're, or there'd be more than one data point, obviously, but the nutritional piece of that is, is really, I mean, maybe more important than just the quantity. Um, uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Well. well, the, the quality of the food that you're eating, you know, why exactly. do not like their vegetables? Cause like, and, you know, quite frankly, they taste like garbage.
0: Yeah, I think it's well known in society that the nutritional content of our food is not what it was 50, 60 years ago or even even longer. And that is that is part of the problem. That is part of why consumers have turned to organics because they want to get the the best quality food that they can. And they know that organics, as you've stated today, are taking better care of the soil and have a focus on that. And, um, you know, that's that's something that we definitely want. So genius to go back to the Amazon methods of, you know, infusing the bio product that we're already producing and infusing that with nutritional quality to then put back into the soil uh, that then helps the, the quality of our yield and the nutrition that's in there. Because we do need to rebuild, especially after this pandemic, people are more focused on immunity and the strength of their body to fight off things that come across their path now more than ever, I think.
1: Well, absolutely. You know, I, I say that, you know, cascading positive effects of organic agriculture when you know when it's done properly, is you know, you have ecosystem services from the healthy soil. You, the water retain uh, sorry the soil retains more water so you have less flooding you have less runoff the foods uh, more uh, nutrient dense so people are healthier and then you have the cascading negative effects of conventional agriculture right where you have all these disease states where you have soil erosion where you have bad air quality where you have like the erosion of rural economies too America and Canada have lost so many farmers. So many family farms, which really were the backbone of that rural economy. Mm. Um, Talking to our farmers, you know, a lot of them are, you know, 56 years old. They tell me that, you know, when they're younger, in their 20s, you know, there are barn dances, there are curling bond spiels. There was, you know, um, you know, baseball tournaments during the summer. There was culture. Now you see a lot of the rural areas being hollowed out. Mm -hmm. the farms have gotten so big that we're doing ridiculous things like desiccating i don't know if your uh your audience is aware of this but desiccation is a real issue and so what is desiccation farms have gotten so big that they can't farm by the weather they so you know they can't wait for the first frost before the stalks of the plants get brittle for example so they can go in and harvest it. What they have to do is they go in there and they usually spray with Roundup to kill the crop so that they go can go in and harvest that. That's direct application of a herbicide on the crop that people are eating, yeah. as opposed to where the herbicides were used when the plant is vegetating to compete against the weeds, but you you know, you didn't use much herbicide when the crop was actually flowering and setting seed because you'd already dealt with your weed issue before with the herbicides. Now they're using these herbicides uh, just before you're about to harvest and eat the crop, right? And there's supposedly rules, but people aren't necessarily following them, of course, because they don't, You know, the farmers are under economic gun, right? So they have to do what they have to do. And all sorts of issues too with the nitrogen fertilizer in that markets. This year, for example, for the nitrogen fertilizer uh, the cost went up four times. Wow, four times. So there's you know the mark and the farmers complain about marketplace manipulation. Of course, the the agencies that are supposed to um, uh, regulate that don't right? You have a revolving door between the USDA and the corporations, between the FDA and the corporations. Um, Well, I
0: know, Jason, it is absolutely not a perfect system. And I'm excited that there are people like Farmer Direct Organic Foods that are, you know, doing the right thing and kind of leading the way. And you're not alone. I mean, I've talked to, to others who are really caring about what's going on with our soil. So I hope that You know, consumer sentiment and and how we vote with our pocketbook, essentially what kind of foods we want by what kind of foods we're buying, you know, can hopefully turn the tide in the right direction. But I think there's a lot of movement out there, and I, I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront And we have covered some really great topics today, but I do want to give you the opportunity if there's anything you'd like to share with our audience that we haven't touched on that has to do with um, entrepreneurship, organic foods, whatever you might want to share before we sign off today.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know of any successful entrepreneur where it's been a straight and easy path.
0: (laughs) okay
1: into it um, you're going to experience you know your own special flavor of adversity so you really have to be committed to it beyond just you know i want to make money you know there has to be like an ethical underpinning that drives you Mm -hmm. and i would really recommend too and you know this may be you know a little bit strange but um you know off topic but um i'd encourage any entrepreneur, anybody even just in your own daily life, you're not an entrepreneur, but definitely if you're an entrepreneur, because you're going to be dealing with a tremendous amount of stress, you need to develop a spiritual practice. And what I mean by that is you need to meditate daily, you know, you know, Qigong, however you want to define it. You need to do something to transmute that stress. If you don't transmute that stress, it is going to pile up in, in, Your internal organs, and it's going to manifest itself in some crazy health crisis. Okay. Mm -hmm. A cancer, heart disease, whatever it is, kidney failure, whatever it is. If you don't transmute that stress, if you don't find a way to basically really be conscious of that and meditate it, meditate so it doesn't pile up, remove, get those energy blockages moving, Mm -hmm. they're, they're going to pile up and you're going to get hurt. So exactly. that may be off topic. It's very personal for me too. Mm-hmm. Um so just really recommend that, you know, be in touch with yourself and your body. Just don't let the stress pile up.
0: Well, I think I really appreciate you speaking from your wisdom, Jason, because you've you've walked the walk and you've been in those stressful situations and you know what it is to be a, an entrepreneur and a business owner and dealing with the, the stresses of the decisions that you need to make. And um, so I really appreciate you sharing, sharing that personal side as a maybe a um, a little bit of a witness to all of us that as we deal with the stresses in our lives that we need to be really paying attention to the personal side so thank you very much for that and also thank you to our sponsor uh the farm to plate again they're enabling better food supply chain management and you can find out more about them at farmtoplate.io thanks again Jason for being with us today
1: yeah thank you for the opportunity it was great thanks for listening to future foodcasts Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.